Blog Talk Radio. Namaste. You are now in the Funk Soul Cafe, a cool, hot, soulful radio show for artists, writers, and so much more, hosted by yours truly, Robert Batista. So sit back, grab a nice, warm, and soulful cup of java or chai, and listen and enjoy. My main purpose today is to challenge those of us electing leaders to evaluate what may be wrong-headed ideas about virtues we hold dear, such as peace and love. Abdul Baha's message highlights how even those with peace and love in their hearts, those who might qualify as what he called high-minded sovereigns, must agree to confront those bent on murder and mayhem. These powerful words are part of a blog post by today's esteemed guest, Wade Frasson. Namaste, Wade Frasson, and welcome to the Funk Soul Cafe. Namaste, Robert. Thank you so much for having me on the air today. All right, it's a pleasure, Wade. Let's first start off by taking your java order. We have a wonderful variety of fine espressos, cappuccinos, and lattes. And we also have herbal teas for those tea lovers. So what's your fancy, Wade? Well, I would take the uh, the latte because um, <laughs> I've always enjoyed uh, milk with my coffee, to which my dad usually says, yeah, you're not weaned. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I'll join you definitely in that. So let me get that for you. And here you go. Enjoy. Wonderful, sir. Wade, in our previous conversation, you referred to yourself as a real-life Forrest Gump. I'd like to open up the show by you explaining exactly what you mean by this. Sure. So I have, uh, when people ask me, so where are you from? I always have a hard time answering that because I was uh, born in Canada and stayed there for two years. Now they were very good years. Um, Since then I've lived in seven countries and uh, learned different languages and um, 
I've had so many unique experiences that in my travels and, you know, meeting new people, I would often, you know, just be in general conversation and then say, oh, yeah, that that uh, is, is kind of like what, what happened to me when such and such. And I would tell a story. And after, you know, a few such encounters, I found that certain individuals um, began to think that I was lying to them, that I was making this up. Surely all those things could not have happened to one person. And, uh, you know, they, they go from having been kidnapped as a child and smuggled out of the country, uh, where I spent two and a half years uh, in Sweden in a court case that eventually went to the Supreme Court of the country. And uh, later I was in Leningrad when Gorbachev was abducted, which uh, a lot of people have sort of forgotten about. And uh, in South Africa under apartheid, I lived in a tent in Alaska for 10 months, and on and on it goes. And, uh, you know, these are, these are real experiences that have shaped, shaped my life and my writing. And, uh, you know, that's why I made that Forrest Gump reference. A tent in Alaska. <laughs> wow, we have to talk more about that, but that's another story. Uh, Wade, your latest book. The People of the Sime seems like a fantastic read. What's it about, and where did this story germinate from in your head? Well, some of those experiences that I had, even as a child, the kidnapping uh, led to a search, uh, a quest throughout my life for coherence. And <clears throat> I, often along the way, I, I was, you know, picked myself up from this or that bruising with the thought that, you know, this experience may help me help others someday. You know, that part of me was always there, the desire to make the world a better place, to translate my experiences into something positive for, for others, not just myself. And um, so that was, that was really sort of the genesis of it originally, and that's kind of covered in the foreword. Um, and uh, it was a mix of, of trying to encapsulate what these rather dramatic and very unusual experiences taught me about life that is common for all people. And so the desire was to, to share those stories in a compelling tale as I was continuing to sort things out and search for you know, better and bigger answers in such a way that the reader would be occasion to reflect upon their own life's experiences and draw lessons that might be similar or different for them, but just to reflect and process what they had gone through. And I've, I've found that that is so true because as I, as I cover the experiences in, the, in this book, The People of the Sign, which is the first book of a trilogy, um, I've had people from, from all over the place uh, relate to this or that you know, fragment in the book that was kind of surprising and, and then go on to pour out their, their heart and soul to me as to some experience that they'd had that they're now reflecting on and, and reviewing in a different light and perhaps getting some meaning and, and some understanding from it. I love the book's title. Was this the original title from the beginning or did you play around with others before picking this one? So that, that title came to me, um, the sign in this case, you know, it has many layers, but it's referring specifically to the, the sign of the seventh day Sabbath. So in, in part of my Forrest Gump meanderings, um, I was involved with a religious group that many would consider a cult. 
And we believed at that time that the Seventh-day Sabbath, the, the Saturday of the, of the Jewish people, was the, the sign of a, of a true Christian, really, um, the sign of the people of God. That's what you had to keep. If you kept that day, you were one of those chosen ones. Um, now, we never referred to ourselves in that manner, the people of the sign. And uh, some, of, some of my past colleagues and associates who have read the book and, and friends and, and others, many whom, whom I didn't know, were a little bit puzzled by my formulation of it, but then, but then they felt it really did actually encapsulate sort of their identity and how important it was to them. But it also, to your point, it's, it's kind of universal. And then you look at the cover with the, with the father's son holding the baby's hand up. That was, that was a, a graphic artist friend of mine. That was his conception of the original concept of the book. And it, was, it just perfectly encapsulated the sort of helping and guiding people to the light. But it's, but it's kind of dim and it's not clear. And, and uh, you know, people looking for a sign, and, and do we, are we following the right sign? And all those things are wrapped up to it. So it's, it's the kind of thing where uh, it's, it's got a very specific um, element in the book, a really huge component, but it's also open to a lot of interpretation. So it, it came in kind of an inspiration, and, and I'm very, very happy with it. I know this story is part autobiographical, but... Did you do any type of extensive research for the people of the sign? And if so, what did that entail? So it's very much autobiographical. Um, the research that's involved in it is research that I did throughout my life. So in, in actually writing the book, there was no major research that took place. I did continue to read, and, and the, things that, the things that I was researching into um, – really play into this, the second and most importantly, the third book of the trilogy. But the first book was easy to write because I had studied uh, theology. I had studied biblical archaeology. I was um, a participant in the City of David uh, ex, uh, exhibition in conjunction with Hebrew University while I was in college. And so, you know, the, the, the theology, the distinction between Judaism and Christianity, um, bringing that to light in a, in a, in a, in a way that's really accessible um, as woven into the, this very dramatic story of, of a young child being buffeted by kidnapping and, and uh, you know, then plotting the murder of his father, uh, which is one of the chapters in the book. Um, you know, and, uh, and a lot of drama there being in an orphanage, you know, that was, those were personal life's experiences that I went through. Um, I think there's a quote in there from the Montessori school to try to shed some light on what was going through, uh, my head at the time, which of course, as a child, I had no idea what was, what was going on. The, the, the feelings and thoughts that I had were those of a child, and, I, and I'm very careful not to be anachronistic, not to add in what I'm thinking today, not to interpret it, but rather to represent it and have some interpretation for the reader. But I do throw in a Montessori quote there because I thought it just so clearly encapsulates what happens to a child when the order of the universe for that child is fragmented and shattered. So little little bits of of my uh, my education are in there, but but not, no, not a lot of research for that particular book. Um, that changes for the second and third book of the trilogy, where uh, I read extensively the books of other religions, um, trips to India come into play there. Um, you know, a lot of the research is from travels because I really have traveled the world. I've been to over 
50 countries and, you know, studying these languages, you just, you just pick up a lot. Um, and I read extensively, but it's hard to say. I, I did research on uh, ancient civilizations as well, some stuff that National Geographic uncovered, the latest research around uh, the origins of humanity and their religious yearnings from, from ancient times. You know, those things are, are things that I have researched, especially, again, for the third book in the, in the, in the trilogy. Wade, many authors in the beginning look to hone their craft by taking advanced courses in creative writing and or joining various writers' workshops. Did you? I did not. Um, however, I, my desire to write was, was very early on when I was in junior high and high school. Um, and I was very much into music. I mean, I was writing lyrics and poems. Um, and I took a creative writing class in uh, high school. And, um, you know, I, I remember Doug Carney was my creative writing teacher. And I remember him writing in my yearbook, uh, you know, encouraging me to keep writing that I might find solace. Because some, some of the teachers were aware that's and, – and by the way, I was living in the tent during my senior year in high school. Um, wow. And uh, we're talking Alaska, you know, 20 below. And um, <laughs> so – so, um, but then I, then I got involved more heavily in the religious group and I put aside the idea that I would write, but of course, then I was, I went to college and I studied theology. So I, so I took difficult courses, um, and, um, you know, had to write papers and research. And then for a while I was a minister and I had to give these sermons and I would write them all out. So it only came much later, the idea that I would write, but by then I had, I had been writing you know, so much that I, I didn't, didn't feel compelled to take classes. And, and by the way, then I had a daughter, um, a newborn daughter that came uh, rather late in my experience, which I'm very extremely blessed and grateful for. But that, that little sweetheart would keep me up half the night. By the time I'd be up the third time, that's when I'd be up in my office writing, you know, at 2 a.m. to just pour this stuff out on paper. And there, there wasn't time really to, to, to do anything but just write at that at that time when when the inspiration really came to 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 get all this down i love the book's cover depicting the two hands as you spoke talk more about its metaphor and symbolism so you know some of your listeners may be familiar with uh the da vinci code and in there yes. you have the fibonacci sequence Right, which is kind of like the the mystery key, and so my trilogy also had to have a mystery key that sort of encapsulated the themes in the book. And I took the last three verses of the Old Testament, which have this sign in it, this Sabbath day sign, um, and it has the whole apocalyptic vision, right? You know, the apocalypse and and the end of the world. But there's another component with these two hands, and so I'll just from memory recite these verses i won't get them exactly right but it says basically um remember the law of my servant moses so for those interested in religion the distinction between judaism and christianity um and now we're talking mainstream protestant because the catholic in eastern orthodox is a little different where they they are more focused on a kind of law but but protestant you know, the, the Lutheran uh, Reform, Reformation churches, they 
say, you know, faith and nothing but faith, and they throw out the law. They say the law was nailed to the cross. And so whereas Judaism is very much a people of the law, Christianity is a people where law, it's, it's all about forgiveness. And so that's, that statement at the very end of the Old Testament, remember the law of my servant Moses, which, of course, the Sabbath being the test commandment and the sign. And then it says, um, I will send you Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And Elijah is symbolic of the announcement of the return of Christ and all that stuff. But then it's fascinating to, to, to see how he then ties it in. He says, and, I will, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I smite the earth with a curse. And there you have the whole apocalypse division, which, which the churches that I was involved in, you know, detractors would say we played to the fear of, of that, you know, second coming and all the horror that it would bring uh, before, you know, the dawn of the new age would, would, would arise with, with Christ's return. So that the two hands represent the turning of the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the father, which is a major theme because of the kidnapping and the divorce that I experienced as a child, um, you know, there's a period of time when I hated my father and plotted his murder. So all of that is woven into this story and symbolized by the cover. In your book's preface, you write, writing a deeply personal story is difficult and painful. It's just plain hard to approach life objectively or to understand your own motives. Wait, I can understand when you say that writing, that the writing of the story was difficult, but why was it so hard to approach the story objectively, and why was it so critical to you to understand your own motives? Um, you know, <laughs> another area of research that I did, and, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't formally research for the book. I'm just a voracious reader, but is to study into philosophy as well, right? And so the nature of subjectivity and objectivity and Hume and Kant and those philosophers, um, you know, really get at this question of, of, of subjectivity and objectivity, you know, and, and who and what we are as beings in this universe, everything we experience, we interpret through our own lens. We, there is nothing objective about us. It is to, to the very atoms and the molecules that comprise us. Uh, and the way in which our biology functions, we are subjective. Um, there's a verse in the Bible that says the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. Who can know it? So, you know, it's like an onion. You strip off layers and layers and layers of, of why you did something or how, exactly how it happens. And, and I tend to be very analytical. And there's just no end of of trying to get to the bottom of why you did something. Um, and theology, you know, has this idea of the original sin in some religions and, you know, are we good? Are we bad when we were made? All of those questions, they're just very important to me because I believe, I believe that there is a true North. I believe that there is an objective path to peace and to happiness but why does humanity bring about such misery? I mean, look at the world today. Look at Syria. <laughs> you know, and uh, that was a theme in, in the Worldwide Church of God that I was a part of for, for a number of years of, you know, man, we can put a man on the moon, but we can't, you know, feed our neighbor who's starving to death. 
So obviously we're very conflicted creatures. And, uh, you know, I, it's taken my whole life to try to get get um, around some of the some of the ways that I was wrapped around the axle because I, I was a victim as a child. And so many people, um, you know, they they're in, in social work. We know that people can remain victims all their life. And even if they are fighting to not be that way, they're still controlled by the things that occurred to them. That's why they fight. So, you know, so getting back to a decent place, I mean, you, you opened the show with Namaste. Uh, what a beautiful concept. This, the light in me salutes the light in you. And, and between beings, right, in the, in the art of dialogue and discourse, we arrive at a greater truth. Because when I look at the light in you, it is different from the light in me. And I can gain some objectivity on my own subjective self by respecting and accepting your perspective. I, I, that's a meandering answer, but it's a difficult question. <laughs> sure, I can understand. Uh, Wade, um, many of us artists and writers, myself included, who write stories that, stories that are autobiographical, when we go back and write them, we tend to at times relive them and go through what we went through before. How was that for you? Well, I had actually, my, my experiences were so extreme um, that, that I really had to process them long before writing this book. One of the experiences I have, my, my younger sister, is not mentioned by name in the book because she requested it. Um, but she was very, very upset with me for writing this book. And the reason was she said she had told me years ago that she wanted to write a book. So clearly I had stolen the idea from her. Um, but she said she didn't want to be exploited. Her experiences in the book are, um, you know, she, she had in some ways a more difficult time than I, and she's had in some ways a more difficult time processing it um, than, than I did. But I spent so much of my life processing this, even to get to the point where I could write a book. My, my younger sister has not actually ever written that book. And I think it's because she hasn't processed enough of the things yet in a way that would lead her to the point where she could write it down. So, so it, you know, it was, pain, it was painful in parts, but I didn't, I didn't necessarily relive it. But I will share the, the, biggest, the biggest thing that came to me through writing this book was to finally admit to myself that my mother was not a good mother. Um, I ended up in an orphanage after she essentially abandoned us um, because she was out drinking uh, on a bench on a binge for, for three days. And uh, my younger sister was on the neighbor's doorstep in her pajamas crying, saying she didn't know what to wear to school um, because we were just such a dysfunctional situation. So uh, I had cherished the, 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 the idea that my mother loved me and that, um, and that she was such a good woman. She, you know, I kind of held her up on a pedestal and, and that was good and healthy for me for many, many years. But on the eventual path to healing, I just had to admit to myself, no, you know, she was, she was not a good mother. That was a painful realization to come to at my age as a result of writing these books. And it took, I took actually writing this down for me to, to objectively see, man, she was really a bad mother. Why have I so 
tenaciously defended her all these years as being so good when she was objectively not. It doesn't take away from my love for her. Or And by the way, she died when she was 35, when I was 16. Um, it doesn't take away from any of that. But again, it's a more objective reality and understanding. And the more, my view is the more you actually understand reality the way it is, the happier you are, the better off you are, and the healthier you are. Wade, you have graciously agreed to read part of your story for us. Can you set up the piece before you read it? Sure. So um, the uh, the piece that I want to read is, is the, the last third of the second book, which is called The Hardness of the Heart. And the de- one of the demons that chased me was um, the fact that my parents divorced and that was the cause of so much of this terrible parts of this journey. And, and I determined that I would never get divorced, no matter what, that is a mistake that I would never make. And yet, lo and behold, I ended up getting divorced. And so the hardness of the heart touches on the second book touches on why, why would that happen to somebody who so adamantly would never do that? Um, And, and towards the end of the book, the divorce is now final. But I've also lost my job. And uh, I'm trying to get a new job. And, uh, and, and, and by the way, I've reinvented myself from being a minister to being successful in the corporate world. <clears throat> but, I've, but I've lost it because I stood up with some, uh, you know, so, some shenanigans that were going on uh, with, with a large management consulting firm. You know, the whole um, – all the stuff that's been going on for – for decades that people are aware of in the, in the business world where, where investors are getting scammed by large corporations who are <clears throat> cooking the books and all that kind of stuff. So that's the section that I chose to read. Okay. And, and, and by the way, I had, I had been working on getting this foundation going in India for homeless children. And that had also now shattered <clears throat> or was about to, to finally be, have to be put to death. What bothered me most was the impasse in India and the dissolving dream of teachakid.org. Without the income generated by my career trajectory behind it, the foundation was doomed. My shattered dream led to doubt and discouragement, and without a daily schedule provided by gainful employment, I was heading into a tailspin. First, I began staying up late and playing spades online. The next area of my life to trend downhill was my diet. My dinner was often a large bowl of chili and a beer consumed in front of the computer. Dessert was a large bowl of Haagen-Dazs cappuccino ice cream with a hefty dose of Kahlua. The sugar and caffeine kept me up late. This led to me sleeping in and gave me the excuse needed to blow off the golf course, what led, which led to more time spent sitting online playing spades. One beer with my chili turned into two or three, and the dose of Kahlua got larger. My days started late and ended later, with me crashing into bed in the wee hours on a full stomach with a buzz. I was actually kind of shocked to see myself failing to make any progress on the myriad ideas and things we tell ourselves we'll do if we ever have time, but it didn't stop the downhill slide. I had imagined myself to be a self-made, self-motivated man, and it was very discouraging to find myself in this place. At the time, I was not able to cut myself any psychological slack, despite the relatively dramatic changes I had recently gone through. Putting on weight for the first time in my skinny life was the least of my worries. 
Even as my waistline was expanding, a gnawing guilt began to eat me up inside, which along with my lifestyle began to affect my health. For the first time in a decade, I could feel myself getting less well. I was worried about a relapse of the ankylizing spondylitis that had been in complete remission for seven years. This concern was an increasingly valid one. The Holmes and Rahi stress scale lists 43 stressful life events that can contribute to illness. Each of these events carries a numerical score, and a total of 300 correlates to a high risk of illness. I took this test based on the events of that time, and my score was over 550. This didn't include the stress I felt at having baptized and then abandoned groups of people in India who had looked to me for guidance. The Holmes and Rahe stress scale had not apparently previously encountered this particular type of stress. I'm not sure what a midlife crisis really is, but this seemed a good approximation. I began to believe that my ego and my inflated sense of my own capabilities had kept me from taking the opportunity with Countrywide that God had put in front of me. This perspective further increased my doubt and despair. It began to feel like my future would consist of living in the past with regrets. And in terms of my biggest failure, the one that forms the backdrop of this book, my relationship with my wife, I was still struggling to come to grips with what I had come to see. The primary truth about the absolute equality of men and women. Women were not subordinate to men. We were both created in God's image, male and female. One of us was not a subhuman species. The problem was, despite this insight, I was now alone, and it is not good for a man to be alone. In this time of failure and self-doubt, there was no female at my side to help or encourage me. I had pushed them all away in my arrogance and superiority. I had traversed so many bridges, burning them all in my zeal and the confidence that I was on the right path, heading in the right direction. And now I find myself on an island, alone with myself, clearly neither as right nor as good as I had previously thought. What pulled me out of the black hole was a call from Rollin, the countrywide executive I had met golfing. He called to thank me for recommending the Deloitte manager whom he had hired as vice president of space planning. My happiness for my respected colleague and friend was bittersweet as he had moved up, out and up while I had moved out and down and was continuing to sink. But Rollin had not called just to thank me. He wanted to talk to me about another role. He needed to fill the strategic planning position for the growing division. This time he had my attention and not only because I was feeling desperate. This position might be the answer to the prayers I should have been saying instead of spending all my time playing spades. <clears throat> just as my checks from Deloitte were drying up, Rollins set up an interview with the chief administrative officer at CFC, a man who reported to the CEO, Angela Mazzillo. This alleviated my concern about Rollins' role, since he had access right up to the top of the company. The interview went well. The chief administrative officer let me know that a meeting with him was a formality. Rollins was authorized to hire whomever he wanted. Suddenly, I emerged from the black hole. I was now vice president, strategic planning with Countrywide Financial Corporation, helping shape the strategy of one of the fastest growing and most exciting companies to work for in 2004, at the heart of a rapidly expanding economy driven largely by a growing real estate bubble. I soon realized I was on the inside of something big. CFC's mission statement was one I could feel good about. It focused on making home ownership possible for the average American. This was my chance to really make a positive difference. I would be helping the bottom rung within society, the disenfranchised and underprivileged, and I would secure my own financial future in the process. 
I was flush with confidence at having stood up against the moral ambivalence of the corporate world, most notably with the partners at Deloitte Consulting, one of the premier management consulting firms on the planet. My new position was divine confirmation. I had followed what I believed to be right and had walked off the end of a gangplank, only to be rescued right before the sharks had gotten hold of me. I would make my mark at an up-and-coming firm and reap the rewards of my material success. This was an elevated platform for greater service to God. This time, things were going to be different. Hey, hey. Hey, I enjoy that. And countrywide, uh, wouldn't that later on uh, become kind of notorious in the news around 2008? <laughs> in January 2009, that same Angela Mazzillo, whom I used to write up and down in the elevator with, was featured on the cover of Time magazine as the number one cause of the economic meltdown. <laughs> There's your Forrest Gump moment. <laughs> oh, man. It just, uh, wow, you can't make this stuff up. So I, I really did enjoy that, Wade, and um, we have to move on. The time is going so quickly. So I know you are the founder of Something or Other Publishing or Soup. How did you first get involved with this great concept, and what is its mission? So my my time at Deloitte, aside from learning how, you know, how these – executives of companies bilk investors from millions of dollars. Um, I also learned how business is run <clears throat> from a positive perspective. And I learned how to analyze um, industries and uh, come up with systems and solutions. Uh, you know, we always called it people process systems that, that help, you know, organize and streamline things so that, so that money can be made, people can be helped, ideas can be realized. And um, I, I, after after the debacle at Countrywide, when I I wrote a I wrote a paper for my MBA class comparing Countrywide culture to the mafia before it exploded. But um, I then went with a internet startup called GoHuman.com. So I knew about social media, and that was in you know right at the time when Facebook was just beginning to rise, and GoHuman.com was kind of a mashup of Yelp and Anzi's List and Groupon um, that ultimately failed. But all of those ideas and thoughts, you know, well, hey, what could we do for the publishing industry? Because I could see that as an author, you know, the, the odds of me being successful and retaining any artistic integrity were very slim. So, I, you know, I began exploring how would you, how would you crowdsource interest on, in your book? And we came up with the, with the concept of, you know, publishing a book idea right at the start so that you're teaching authors about product, platform, and promotion all at the same time, where, where they may not even yet have finished a manuscript, is going way, way upstream, and helping authors before they go flog their, you know, their life's work uh, with a bunch of people who, you know, just throw it on the slush pile. And how can they participate in the process of generating the first hundred readers and fans, you know, the first thousand readers and fans of their work, and and help them understand that that's going to be part of their job in in the brave new world. And so by posting these book ideas, you can go out and crowdsource on all the social media platforms and even through traditional methods, um, you know, readership for your book before it's even published. And the publisher then can work with you. My goal was to get the publisher and the author on the same side of the tug of war rope, trying to solve the same problems rather than sort of, you know, trying to position themselves to their own best advantage and then pointing fingers at each other when things go wrong. 
that's there's there's so much more to it than that but it was through my own struggles of trying to you know I'm, I'm deeply analytical as i said and trying to figure out well if i'm if i'm determined to make my book a success how do i do that and i didn't want to do it the way that everybody else said you had to do it didn't make sense to me so right or wrong and we're still struggling we have not yet had that breakthrough bestseller that we really want but uh, but Five of the last six books we've published have all become number one rated hot new releases on Amazon.com. The most recent one was ahead of Anthony Robbins. Um, so, you know, we, we, we've, we've, we've figured out how to make a book successful in its first three months. Now we just got to, you know, figure out how to, you know, break it through and, and, and reach a mass audience. And we're working on it. Yeah, take it to the next level. Uh, Wade, let's talk about what I call the 800-pound gorilla in the room, and that's marketing. So many authors spend so much time writing and publishing their book but have no clue on how and what it entails to market it. How do you handle the publicizing and marketing of your books? So you're absolutely spot on. That is a, that is a huge issue. I call marketing the black hole in business. Um, you know, they have massive marketing budgets and anyone who's responsible knows the joke uh, about marketing, which is, you know, I know I'm wasting half of my marketing budget. I just can't figure out which half. Now, that's pretty funny <laughs> when it's not really your money. <laughs> and if you don't know what you're doing, you're wasting all of it. So, the, you know, the, the brutal truth is that you're going to lose money on marketing. There is no way, nobody has figured out a way to earn back dollar for dollar the money you spend on marketing a book or anything, really. I mean, if you could, then everybody would be rich. Um, so it's a black hole. You're going to lose money on marketing. So how, how does that work in the traditional publishing world? Well, the, the publishing company, part of their marketing isn't just marketing. It's their entire distribution network and the contracts they have with all the industry players involved. It's just a product that is going to be put through the sausage grinder. It's going to, it's going to appear in all the marketing venues that they already have set up, and it's going to appear in distribution and in bookstores and, and whatnot. And they're going to continue to market this thing for years in terms of, you know, tie-in merchandise and everything, so they can actually afford to lose money on the book, for example. And, you know, they can, once they find an author whose name is known, they can, you know, continue to mint money with that known author, you know, the Stephen King being a most famous example. So, so the publishing relationship with the authors is built on the, the dirty secret that the reason you're getting 5 to 15% royalties as a new author is because, in theory, they're going to make you a star, and then your name and your brand is going to be worth something because they made it happen. And therefore, they're going to take 85 to 95% of everything on whatever books you have under contract when you sign up. And all of that model doesn't work at all. In, in again the brave new world and in the in, even in the indie world much less the self publishing world so that's why it's so important in the in our model that we get the author and the publisher on the same page and so in our marketing approach we split the marketing budget 50-50 you're going to you're going to 
contribute 50% as an author and will contribute 50%. If you're willing to put in $10,000 to market your book and know that you're not going to make it back, we'll match that. It's good for you and it's good for our company, but we, we recognize and we tell people you will not make the money back on your book. That's an investment in the future. So but you better be writing your second book and your third book. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, the, the individual breakthrough of a single book, you know, is the lottery ticket that everybody thinks they're going to win. And sure enough, somebody wins at some win, which allows everybody else to keep living the dream and the fantasy. Exactly, and keeps hope alive. <laughs> yep. So, Wade, uh, contact information. Uh, how do people get a hold of you? Uh, you know, they follow you, uh, contact you, uh, and know more about you. Give out any contact information you'd like. Well, in addition to being Forrest Gump, I'm the only Wade Franson in the, in the known Googleverse. It doesn't seem like an unusual name, but um, <laughs> it is. So it's Wade, W-A-D-E, Franson, F-R-A-N-S-S-O-N. Google me and you will find me. I'm the only one. That's very interesting. This has been the Funk Soul Cafe with me, Robert Batista. One of the easiest ways to peer into my soul is to download and read my free micro story called My Baby Has No Name from smashwords.com my guest has been author and so much more Wade Frasson and his fantastic book is called The People of the Sign make sure you order your copy today I will close with an ancient proverb they thought they could bury us they didn't know we were seeds thank you so much Wade for being my guest on the Funk Soul Cafe. Robert, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and an honor, and uh, we have to do a second show. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Have a wonderful rest of the evening. Bye now.